morning, family. I want to uh, let you know about something special that's happening this morning. If you'll notice, our uh, brothers and sisters from Iglesia de Cristo are here with us this morning. And the reason for that is uh, we have invested in a new translation system. And so try to break the barrier a little bit uh, for our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters. And so welcome to you guys. We're glad that you're here. Um, and I want to get a, a, a huge thank you to Vicky Uskanga, who is playing the role of translator today. And I don't envy her uh, because it's probably hard enough to make sense out of me, you know, just in English and then have to make that make sense in another language. So thank you, Vicki, for the work you're doing this morning. We appreciate you very much. Turn over, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of John. And last week we started John chapter 7. We're going to continue that this morning. I'll be up front with you. I told you last week we would finish John chapter 7. I lied to you. It was not on purpose. I promise. There is something beautiful embedded in here that I think deserves its own lesson. And so we're going to do that next week. I'll explain what that is at the end of today's lesson. Uh, and so today, if you'll be turning over, and we ended in verses 12 and 13. So I'll read that in just a second to set the stage for what we're going to talk about. Before we do that, though, I want to take just a minute to make a, an exciting announcement. Uh, if uh, the Applegate family could stand up for just a second, Blair and Araceli are here, uh, the kids are, are in there. Uh, if you guys would give them a round of applause, they have decided to place membership with us, which I know is going <laughs> to... Might be surprising to some people uh, because they already feel like a part of the family, but we're, we're glad that you guys are committed to the work here, and if you could remain standing for the lesson that follows, that would be great. <laughs> you can be seated. You can be seated. Um, and if you don't know their children yet, I encourage you to get to know them. Their uh, laughter is instantly contagious. Uh, they've endeared me to them very quickly. We've had Hadley in our class on Wednesday nights, <laughs> and uh, this past week we're talking about the Exodus story. And so I was going through kind of a recap of everything we talked about, and I said, do you guys remember when Pharaoh took away the straw from the Israelites so that they had to work twice as hard? And she said, oh, Pharaoh was so rude. <laughs> so anyway, we're glad to have you guys as part of the family. We love you, and we're looking forward to what God does with us together in his kingdom. So we ended up in John chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 last week, and it reads like this. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man, of course, talking about Jesus. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And so we see, as Jesus' fame continues to grow, he finds himself in Jerusalem. His brothers had urged him to go there for the Feast of Booths so that he could become even more famous. But he tells them, no, I'm not going to do what you want. I'm doing things on my own. He goes to the feast anyway, but he waits until about halfway through the feast before he begins to do any kind of public teaching. And his purpose in this chapter is not to become more famous, but to make an impact on the crowds, to urge them to believe in him. And as people are wrestling with that, as people are asking the question, who is this man? We find that embedded throughout this chapter, and they're asking it in different ways but kind of weighing heavily on the whole conversation is their fear of the Jewish leaders. We want to know who he is. We've got a lot of questions about how he's able to do the things he's doing, but we're afraid of what the leaders might say if they hear us asking these questions out loud. And so with that in mind, let's move into the rest of chapter 7. 
So we're going to skip a few verses, and we're kind of kind of jump around this chapter, and I apologize for doing that, but it's the way my brain makes the most sense out of what's going on here, and I hope I can help you make sense out of it as well. So let's skip down to verses 19 and 20, and this is what we read. Jesus says this, he says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Now what does he mean by that? That they're all disobedient on purpose? That none of them care about the law of Moses? That none of them love the law? No, that's not what he's saying. They love the law and they're trying to keep it. It's just that no one can perfectly keep the law. And so everyone essentially is hypocritical because we all want to do God's will, but we all struggle to do God's will. So he says, none of you keeps the law, so why are you trying to kill me? And it's an interesting question. It seems like it's out of left field. But remember, the way he begins this chapter, John tells us that Jesus was staying in one area, avoiding Judea, because the Jewish leaders had already made up their minds to put him to death. And so he's not imagining this. He's not paranoid. He knows that people want him dead. And so he asks them the question, why are you trying to kill me? Now the crowds respond incredulously, it's not everyone that wants Jesus dead, it's the Jewish authorities. And so the crowds, the regular people, they don't know what he's talking about. And so they respond like this, you are demon-possessed. In other words, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You're crazy, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Now, let's stop there for a second, because up to this point in Jesus' ministry, has he done more than one miracle? Of course he has. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about that one thing he did back in John chapter 5. Last time he was in Jerusalem, he healed a man who had been crippled from birth. And of course, the Jewish authorities had a problem with that, not because of what he did, but because of when he chose to do that. When did he heal that man? What day of the week? On the Sabbath. And so this conflict begins, and Jesus rightfully is saying, all of the conflict we have, the whole reason you're mad at me can be traced back to what I did back in John chapter 5 when I healed a man on the Sabbath. I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a baby boy on the Sabbath. How old was a baby Israelite, a baby boy, when they circumcised him? On what day? On the eighth day. What if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Would they wait until the ninth day? Would they move it up until the seventh day? No, they circumcised him on the eighth day because that's what the law commanded. So Jesus is going to point something out. You do work on the Sabbath when it suits you to do work on the Sabbath. When you think that it is fulfilling the will of God, you will gladly comply and do that work on the Sabbath. But here's the problem. You circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses might not be broken. Why are you angry with me, he asks, for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? If it's that important just to remove a little bit of flesh so to be pleasing to God on the Sabbath, then why are you angry with me when you see God at work making a whole person well on the Sabbath? What was the real problem here that they were unable to see God at work among them? There was a disconnect between what God was doing and what they thought God should do. They had a problem with their perception. They weren't able to see clearly. 
They were blinded by their own prejudice, their own bias. And that's really the heart of what I want to talk about this morning. So we see as a result of this, Jesus make a very uh, strong statement about their current situation. And he urges them in verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly, or some translations say judge according to righteous judgment. Stop paying attention to only what you're able to see with your eyes so that you can see what truth is. Is it a common human condition that we struggle sometimes to see truth because we're blinded by our own prejudices? Anybody ever struggled with that? All the time, right? And that is so well illustrated to us here. So I want to talk about this statement Jesus makes as a way of kind of looking at the entirety of this chapter. And so with this in mind, let's ask this question. In what ways do people tend to judge according to appearance instead of judging rightly? And I think there's three examples given just in this chapter alone of how the Israelites were doing that very thing. Number one, they were overly concerned about a person's level of education. Okay, listen to what they say here in verse 15. The Jews were amazed. Amazed at what? At what Jesus was teaching. Very interesting. In this chapter, Jesus does not perform any public miracles or signs. This chapter is all about what he taught. They're amazed at what he was teaching, and they ask this question. How did this man get such learning without having been taught? In other words, this guy didn't go to the right schools. He's not trained like our rabbis were trained. And so how does he know what he knows? It doesn't make sense. There's this disconnect. We know we can only listen to those who have been trained the right way. You have to have a certain level of education in order to hold any kind of authority. He doesn't have that. And so how can this make sense? How can he sound so smart when he didn't go to school? That's the basic question. Jesus responds to this, but first, just another example. I find an interesting parallel to this in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 do something very similar to what Jesus did in John chapter 5. They find a man who was lame from birth, and they heal him in the name of Jesus. And of course, just like the Jewish authorities had a problem with what Jesus did, now they've got a problem with what Jesus' followers are doing. They're carrying on the work of Christ, and they put them on sort of trial, and they're asking them these questions. And then this is their response in Acts 4 and verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, it's a nice way of saying uneducated. They're uneducated, ordinary men. How were they able to hold their own in the context of a, 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 a Jewish trial? How were they able to speak so courageously to the Jewish leaders when they were just normal, uneducated people. They were astonished when they realized that. And they took note, I love this part, that these men had been with Jesus. It's kind of like a light bulb went off. These are just ordinary guys. Oh, wait. No, they're not ordinary men. These are the men that had been trained by Jesus. And now we find them speaking the same way Jesus spoke, doing the same things Jesus did. But this is what happens, right? It's just a normal way that people interact with each other. There's a bias, according to a person, based on the level of education that they have. And there are certain people that we will listen to 
because of their education. There's certain people that we will dismiss because of their education. And that's happening here. Now, Jesus responds to all this. And if you look at chapter 7, starting in verse 16, this is his response. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. It's a simple answer. So the question is, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? He didn't go to school, but he came from the Father. And so his teaching comes not from any school of learning, but from God himself. That's where his teaching comes from, and that's why they were so amazed at what he was teaching. So he says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there is nothing false about him. In other words, put me to the test. Do you want to know whether my, speaking is, my, my teaching is my own or whether it comes from the Father? Pay attention to this. Am I seeking my own will or am I seeking the will of the one who sent me? And of course, in the case of Jesus, the answer is clear. Did Jesus do anything to seek his own will during his earthly ministry? Was Jesus looking to gain fame, looking to become self-important? Did he become wealthy? Did he become prominent? Did Jesus gain anything the way that people normally gain by means of rising to prominence? And the answer is no. He did nothing out of selfish ambition, did he? But he humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 2. And so Jesus is saying, look, you don't need to worry about where I got my formal education because my teaching comes from the Father. And the way you can know that that's true is by paying attention to what I do. Am I seeking my own will or the will of the one who sent me? So, first of all, as a person's level of education, that is something that can cause us to have a prejudice or a bias that blinds us to the truth. Number two is this, where a person comes from. Where a person comes from. Maybe in the three things I'm going to talk about, this is the one that I think is most obvious to us and most damaging to us at the same time. The biases and the prejudices that we have based on where a person comes from. And it's not, I'm not just talking about geography, but those things that make people different or other. To them, Jesus was an other. He was disqualified immediately based on where he came from. So this is what they say in John 7 and verse 27. We know where this man is from. We know Jesus. Where did Jesus call a home, his hometown? Nazareth, right? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, we know where he comes from, but when Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. There was an expectation among the Jewish people at the time that God was sending Messiah to them. But there were all kinds of ideas that they had regarding how they were going to identify Messiah when he came. And one of the important things to them was where he came from. God had told them where Messiah was going to come from. One of the ideas, referencing back to Scripture, was that Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Why Bethlehem? Well, because who else came from Bethlehem? David. It was part of the promise God made to David. Okay, now, was Jesus from Bethlehem? Yeah. It's where he was born. Okay, God worked it out so that that's where he was born. But did people know him as Jesus of Bethlehem? No, they knew him as Jesus of Nazareth. And so if you were looking for Messiah to come from Bethlehem and Jesus of Nazareth shows up, you got a problem. But there's this other line of thinking that it wasn't a specific place 
that Scripture named, but the exact opposite, that in fact no one would know where the Messiah came from. He would just kind of show up mysteriously with no place to call home. Did that fit Jesus' description? No. When you've got a man named Jesus of Nazareth, right, and that, that's not his legal name, that's how people knew him, okay, then he's not from nowhere, he's from a place, and it was Nazareth. Okay, but either way, the fact that he is from where he was from discounted him in the mind of a lot of people. So again, we find this response on behalf of Jesus. Let me pick up in verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from, but I am not here on my own authority. He who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. In other words, just like don't worry about my education because it comes from God, his response here is don't worry about where you think I come from because ultimately where did I really come from? God, the Father. I'm not really from Nazareth. That's my hometown, but I am Jesus sent by God, not Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's trying to get them to change their perspective to be able to overcome these prejudices that they have. So we continue on, and he goes, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We talked about this last week. Jesus did what he did when he wanted to do it, how he wanted to do it, and no one was going to stop him. Still many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. I am from the Father, and eventually what? I'm going back to be with the Father. And you're not going to be able to follow me there. Of course, do they have a way to make sense out of all of this? No, they're totally confused by what he's saying. Okay, So they say this in verse 35, The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks? Is he going to go to the dispersion and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They, they just can't make heads or tails out of exactly what he's saying because they were so blinded by the way that they were used to thinking about things. Jesus can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from and he's not from Bethlehem. And so he didn't satisfy what they thought was true about Messiah. Later on in verses 41 and 42, still others ask, how can Messiah come from Galilee? Does Scripture not say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And he was neither of those things in their mind. Of course, we know that, in fact, he was from Bethlehem and did fulfill Scripture. But Jesus' point here is don't pay so much attention to where you think I'm from. Pay attention to where I'm telling you I'm from. I've come from the Father, and I'm returning back to him. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is what the authorities say later on. In other words, we know, we know that this man is of no value based purely on the fact that he has come out of Galilee. That's all you need to know. You ever discounted somebody based on where they're from? That's what they're doing to Jesus. All right, number three. Where a person looks to for authority. 
There are systems of authority established in this world. And we all operate under them in one way or another. And all of us have already decided in our minds where authority comes from. And so if we're going to answer a question, is this true, we all look to that source of authority in answering that question. Where is that authority? That's the question. So you look here in verse 13. No one would say anything. We already talked about this. They had all these questions about Jesus, but no one would say anything publicly. What were they worried about? For fear of what? The leaders. Those in positions of authority were so intimidating to them that they didn't dare ask questions out loud because they don't want to make the authorities mad. We'll talk more about this in just a minute. You skip down to verse 26. Now they're responding this way. They've got a question. They say, here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? In other words, okay, Jesus is speaking publicly in the temple courtyard during this great celebration and nobody is doing anything about it. That must mean that the authorities know something we don't. Do they know that he's Messiah? Do you see how much it matters to them? What the authorities thought about the identity of Jesus. It's like we can't conclude anything other than what the authorities conclude because they're the authorities. And it was handicapping their ability to see and understand truth. Now, what is the response to this? This one's interesting. Let's pick up in verse 45. Because here it's not actually Jesus that responds to this. It's someone Jesus had interacted with a few chapters earlier. So let's pick up in verse 45. It says, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees and asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? They went to arrest him, but couldn't lay hands on him. And this is their response. No one ever spoke the way this man does. We went to arrest him, and we were so impressed by his teaching that we just couldn't make ourselves do it. Of course, that makes their bosses mad. And so this is what they respond in verse 47. You mean that he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. And listen to this. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing about the law, there is a curse on them. What are they saying? They're saying, listen, we are the authorities and if we do not believe in him, that's all you need to know. Don't pay attention to the crowds that are not us. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know anything about the law. But we, the authorities, we get to decide who's true and who's not. Pay attention to us. Because if we are telling you to go arrest him, I don't care what you think about his teaching. Don't be deceived. We're the ones in charge here. We're the ones calling the shots. Nicodemus, verse 50, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number. You remember Nicodemus from chapter 3, that conversation he has with him? I talked about how we don't really know exactly what Nicodemus thought about Jesus from that point forward, but look at what happens. He ends up standing up for Christ. He was one of their own number asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And this is where they respond. Are you from Galilee too? Right? Just more bias, more prejudice. Are you not listening? We're in charge. We are the authorities. Just listen to us and we will tell you everything you need to know. Does that way of thinking still plague 
groups of faith and even Christianity today? Yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. Okay, so a recap. What are the three things just in this chapter that we see about the ways that people can be prejudiced by paying attention to just appearances and not judging rightly? Well, three things, okay? A person's education. Where a person comes from and where a person looks to for authority. Now, I want you to think about this critically for a minute. A person's education. As I asked before, I'm going to ask it again. Have you ever discounted a person based on what you thought they knew? Yeah, you have. Because we all have. Have you ever been on the other side of that? Have you ever been discounted because of your lack of appropriate education? You can't possibly know that because you don't know as much as I do, right? Or you weren't trained in the appropriate place or taught by the appropriate people. Have you ever experienced that? Yes, of course you have. Now, let me, let me be critical just a minute of our own movement for one second, if you'll allow me to do this humbly. Sometimes in our own fellowship, we have a very tumultuous relationship with education. Um, we sometimes fall victim to the mentality that says, and I'm talking about spiritual matters here, yes, you may be a doctorate in Hebrew, but I have gone to the school of Facebook, and so I know just as much as you do. We have this tendency to discount authority. We are, we are or education. We are almost anti-education sometimes, right? It's like a dirty word in the church sometimes is scholars or scholarship. Ah, the scholar. Who needs a scholar? I can read it on my own. The only reason you can read it on your own is because a scholar translated it from the original language into your language so that you can read it, right? Scholarship is of great value. So let's not just toss scholarship out the window because we're fearful of education. We, be, we can become so protective of our own lack of education that we dismiss anyone who has a higher education. So this goes both ways, but it just speaks to the fact that education is a big deal. We trust certain people based on education. We distrust others based on education. But either way, it can blind us from seeing truth. Okay, what about this other one, where a person comes from? Anything that would make a person other. Jesus had an accent and gave him away. They knew where he was from. And nothing good comes from that place. There's been times in my life where I've felt like an outsider. But it would be pretty ridiculous of me to stand up here today and say that that's categorized my life in any way knowing that there's some of you who've lived your entire lives facing this battle. Discounted immediately because of where you're from. Because your accent gave you away. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like people immediately took a negative view of you just because of where you were from? Yeah, some of you have lived that way your whole lives. And so you can connect with this. You know what that feels like, where a person comes from. Does it tell us everything we need to know about a person? We operate like it does sometimes. Be honest with me. You're in line at a grocery store, and you look at the person in front of you, and you hear them talk, and they've got a foreign accent. Are you already making decisions about what kind of person they must be? Yeah, we do it, and we battle it. It was no, no different in Jesus' time. What about number three? 
where a person looks to for authority. Here again, this goes both ways. There are people in this world who crave authority. And so, like these crowds, they're always going to submit to authority because the authorities get to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And so if the authorities say, do this, we got to do it because they're the authorities. And then there are people, and there's a lot of them here because we're America, and America loves to shrug off authority, right? We are all rebels at heart. Tell us what to do. Mm, I don't think so. You are not the boss of me, right? Okay, the best way I can explain this to you is I see this phenomenon all the time on a daily basis in your Belinda. There's two roads that I have to drive on a regular basis. One is Imperial Highway. Two lanes on each side, it's four lanes, it's divided, it's built more like a freeway, there's exit ramps. Posted speed limit is 60. That road, for whatever reason, is dominated by people who live in fear of authority. And I know that because they will only go 45 miles an hour even though the speed limit is 60, right? And so they need you to know they love authority so much they're not going to get anywhere near the speed limit so that everybody knows I am following the law, okay? We clear everybody? Okay, and I'm going to stay in the left lane to make sure everybody behind me is also following the law. Okay? There's those kinds of people in the world. Then there's the kinds of people that drive on Bastoncherry Road, which is a road that we live right off of. It goes through town, also two lanes on each side, but it goes, you know, entrances into uh, housing developments. It goes right past the high school. You know, logic would say, if you go 45 and a 60, when this is 45, you're going to go 30, right? Except no, because this is a different kind of driver that populates this road. This is the kind of driver that says, oh, the speed limit's 45? Hold my Starbucks. I'm going to see what this puppy can do. You ever seen flames come out of the back of a minivan? Drive down Baston Cherry Road, you'll see it, all right? Everybody is doing like 70 miles an hour down this road, even though they're cyclists and kids walking to school. It doesn't matter. Because nobody's going to tell them how fast they're going to go. This is how authority works in our lives. Sometimes we crave authority. Sometimes we're blinded by authority because we pay too much attention to it. Other times we're so busy trying to prove to those in authority that they're not in charge of us that we end up being blinded by that as well. So these things still apply to us today. We struggle with these things and that's really where I want us to go with all of this this morning. The lesson here is not that we need to overcome the biases of others in order to realize our true potential. I don't know if you guys remember the very first lesson I gave here. It was about David and Goliath and how wrongly we read Scripture sometimes. The story of David and Goliath is about how we can be strong like David and overcome our own giants, right? No, it's about looking to Christ who can overcome those giants we can't. Not every bit of Scripture is about you. And I know we crave personal application from Scripture, but sometimes we do great injustices to Scripture when we just try to make it applicable to ourselves. This is applicable, but not in the way you might think. It's not about overcoming the biases so we can realize our own true potential. That's not what this is about. The reason I asked you to think about how these things apply to us is because of the real application here. Instead, what we learn from this passage is that we need to overcome our own prejudices and biases in order that we can realize the true identity of Jesus. This room is filled with people doing the same thing those crowds in Jerusalem were, asking the question, who is this man? Some of you have already got a definitive answer. Some of you are still struggling to come up with an answer. Who is he and what does it mean for my life? 
But just like they had all these biases and prejudices that kept them from knowing him fully, so do we today. And it would be foolish of us to think that we have fully overcome them. I hear people sometimes make statements like this. I could never believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank, right? Whatever God has done, they feel doesn't match their idea of who God should be, and so he can't really be God. Boy, we think pretty highly of ourselves, don't we? If there is a God who spoke the universe into existence, does his existence depend on our approval of him? That's a pretty ridiculous way to think, isn't it? We struggle with things like this all the time. And even for us today who firmly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, when we read Scripture, there's this constant struggle we have to try to conform Jesus into our own image. We love Jesus, but we want him to be our kind of Jesus. And so we want him to say things and do things that approve of our prejudices and biases instead of taking those things on head on. And so what is required of us? Self-awareness and humility. What things do we lack? Self-awareness and humility. This is a struggle. But by the grace of God, we can come to an understanding. So I encourage you to think about these things and how you approach the story of Jesus. Okay, one last thing, and this is the setup next week, okay? There's a part of this passage that I skipped right over and on purpose because it deserves its own lesson. And so I'm just going to read this passage to you in hopes that you will spend some time thinking about it this week. Come back next week, prepare to talk about it. And this is really the climax of this whole chapter. This is what the whole thing revolves around. Like I said, it's not what Jesus did. In other words, he didn't perform any miracles. It's what he said. And what did he say that people were so blown away by? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What did he mean? And what in the world does that have to do with us? And by the way, isn't God good that he would give us this weather as an illustration of rivers of living water today, just so we can think more deeply upon this? By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Would you please spend some time in this chapter, thinking about the things we've talked about today, but especially in these few verses here, thinking about that statement Jesus makes, this invitation to come to him and drink, so that from within us, rivers of living water might come forth. What does that mean, and what does it have to do with the Spirit? We're going to talk about all that next week. I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll be here. My prayer for you this week is that God is at work in your life. And my prayer is that as you encounter Scripture, the Spirit might be at work in you, breaking down those prejudices you have so that we can see Christ for who He truly is. Because who He truly is, is beautiful. And He's offering you life this morning. This is about belief in Him. Do you believe? And are you ready to take that first step into discipleship this morning? Are you ready to follow Him? How might we be of service to you this morning. Think about that question. We're going to stand and we're going to sing one more song. David, it's the one you
taught us just a few minutes ago, right? Okay, thank you for doing that. I love that song. So let's stand and let's sing together. If there's anything we can do for you, please come forward and let us know. We delight in the love you were. We delight in the Son who was perfect from birth. We delight in the day he's returning to earth. Hallelujah. 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 We will bow our hearts because we are free as we raise our hands to give you glory, Father of life and of love, an infinite word. We're delivered by blood that flows from the tree, draws near to you. Vessels of your mercy before the invention of man, the glorious Trinity. We delight in the law of your word. We delight in the Son who was perfect from birth. We delight in the day he's returning to earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. cloud and the flame, Lord, you guide our steps and restore us again. The nations of men will rejoice in the God of the wilderness. We delight in the law of your word. We delight in the Son who was perfect from birth. We delight in the day he's returning to earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.